Well, for those of you at home, which is pretty much all of you, <laughs> uh, this might feel pretty normal in the sense of you've been sick before, perhaps, and you've used the live stream, and so it's not too different. But I promise you that for those of us who are, who are here, uh, we feel like we've just experienced the rapture. <laughs> Hopefully we don't have to experience this for real in the rapture, uh, but we do look forward to our Lord coming soon. We are all looking forward to Pastor Leek's conclusion to the series he's been preaching, uh, but he needed more time and other ministry responsibilities prevented him from being able to to be here today to conclude that series. So we will see if he will be able to do that next week, given all the concerns that are about and, and whatnot. So he actually asked me to preach in his stead prior to uh, the realization of all that was happening here. Uh, so it's my joy to bring the word of God to you. What our state and our nation and our world is going through is unprecedented in our lifetimes, isn't it? Of course, it's not that Dangerous viruses and diseases are unprecedented. They certainly are not. But the response to the coronavirus is, and though the numbers of both infections and deaths from this particular virus have not yet reached the level of previous viruses, the goal of all of the responses is to prevent it from reaching those numbers. What we're doing is uncomfortable and unsettling. Kids are out of school. Some have no job to go to. Some are told to work from home. A lot has changed in the last few days for many of us. We don't know what the days and weeks ahead will look like. Seven days, of co- seven days ago, of course, we could not have predicted that we would be worshiping together in this way. How long will this last? How will, the, how will we know if the measures that we're taking are even effective? Will researchers find the answers and develop solutions? Will governments establish further restrictions? How difficult will this become? What will be the impact on all of this uh, on our economy? No one has the answers to those questions, and many are fearful and anxious. Can I remind you that prior to the coronavirus taking over our national attention, there is an election that many are concerned about. Even while our minds are currently on the virus, for many months, many people have been very concerned about what's going to be happening happening in the leadership of our country. Who's going to be the nominee to challenge the sitting president? Do they have a chance to win over the electorate? Who will be running the country for the next four years? What will happen to the economy? What will happen to social programs? Will my Social security be secure? Will social tensions rise or dissipate? No one has the answers to these questions, and many are fearful and anxious. What should be the Christian's response to a threatening virus and such a divisive election? How should we, as the people of God, respond in times of such turmoil? How should citizens of heaven conduct themselves in the midst of chaos? What kinds of words should come out of our mouths? In whom should we trust? Well, I would invite you to open your Bible with me to Psalm 146. 
Psalm 146. This psalm opens the grand finale of praise in the book of Psalms. And this psalm of praise is directly aimed at us and everyone in similar situations as ours. This psalm is written to those who in the midst of uncertain times and turmoil and chaos are tempted to trust in mankind. If you're there at Psalm 146, follow along as I read it. He writes, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Are you trusting in princes? Are you listening with bated breath to every press conference and reading every article you can get your hands on, just hoping to hear some good news? Do you put your trust in governments? Do you blame life's problems on those in authority and think that if the right people would get in power, all things would be set right? Do you trust in mankind's ingenuity? Are you anxiously awaiting the news that a vaccine has been developed or that some medicine has been created? Do you trust in yourself? Are you seeking to so control your circumstances, thinking that if I can just get everything the way I want it to be, I will be protected from everything that might go wrong? Our hope and our trust can be in so many things and so many people, including ourselves. But this psalm reminds us that our trust and our hope must always and only be in God, who ordains the days and lives of men, and who alone can accomplish what He purposes. My friends, it doesn't matter who sits in positions of power, authority, and influence in this world, because God's will cannot be thwarted. And so all trust and hope and praise must go to the Lord and not to man. My prayer is that today this text will enable you to praise the true king. In fact, the title of this message is In Praise of the True King. No matter what happens with this virus or any other disease, and no matter who ends up in the Oval Office at the end of this year, we as God's people should have lives that are defined by praising our King. We don't know who wrote Psalm 146, and we don't know the circumstances in which they wrote it. And I'm personally grateful for that, because 
It prevents me from thinking that my responsibility to praise the Lord is dependent on my circumstances and that I only need to praise the Lord when life is going really well. But if the Psalms are anything, they are a declaration that we ought to praise the Lord in the best of times and, yes, in the worst of times. So how would the Holy Spirit have us respond to the circumstances in the coming days, weeks, months, and years? Well, this psalm gives us three answers to that question. There are three exhortations I believe the Holy Spirit would have us hear and apply, not just in this moment and not just during this election, but every day and every morning. The first exhortation is this. Praise the Lord. Look at verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Praise the Lord here is not just an expression of praise. It's an imperative. It's a command that we must praise the Lord. The psalmist calls upon the people of God to praise the Lord. The word in the original is actually one of the most well-known Hebrew words. Hallelujah. It's a compound word taken from Hallel, which means to praise, and the abbreviated form of Yahweh, the Lord. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And notice there in verse 1 that the psalmist not only commands us as the people of God to praise the Lord, he also directs his command to his own soul. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul. To praise the Lord means to speak well of Him, to affirm His greatness in all of His attributes. It means to declare who He is and what He's done to deserve praise. We praise the Lord not only when we say praise the Lord, but when we list out all of the reasons why He is worthy of praise. Someone might ask the question, well, if the Lord is so worthy of praise, why do we need to be told to praise the Lord. Wouldn't, wouldn't praise just naturally rise out of our hearts if indeed he was so worthy of it? Well, it is true that praise should naturally rise from our heart, but the reason it often doesn't is not because God is not worthy of it, but because we ourselves are often blinded by our circumstances. It's so easy for us to get consumed by what is going on around us that what rises out of our hearts is actually Frustration, uncertainty, and fear. We get distracted by thoughts of all the possible ways we can procure a different outcome than what seems likely to happen. Or perhaps we get cynical about everything and say, well, because the world's going to burn up, why even care? I don't know about you, but when my thoughts are directed to politics, praising the Lord isn't what first comes out of my lips. When I read about the coronavirus, praising the Lord isn't what comes out of my lips. I know I need to be told to praise the Lord. Whether it's these circumstances or any other, all of us need to be told to praise the Lord. When we find ourselves getting fearful or frustrated or discouraged or anxious or apathetic, we need to tell our own souls to praise the Lord. We can say to one another, And even to our own souls, soul, praise the Lord. Remember who he is. 
He is sovereign overall and not a molecule in this universe is outside of his control. God is accomplishing his will and he is caring for his people. So don't be discouraged or downcast. Fear not, soul, for God is with you. If we're going to praise the Lord, we need more than a simple reminder. We need to make the determination to do it. Look again at verse 2 and notice the resolve of these words. I will sing to the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. What determines whether or not he will praise the Lord is not who's in control of the government or how much money is in the bank or whether his career plans work out, but whether he is alive or not. Now, why why would this be the minimum standard? Why is being alive the minimum requirement to praise the Lord? Well, because praise should be based on his character, not our circumstances. And a functioning brain is all you need to praise the Lord. Isn't it true, though, that often we praise the Lord because of the blessings that he gives to us? That we praise him for his benefits and not for who he is? We see these two approaches when we consider Job and his wife. And how they responded to the extreme loss of life, possessions, and health. Job praised the Lord. And his wife said, curse God and die. Why did they respond so differently? Because Job's praise transcended his circumstances. And his wife's praise was based on her circumstances. Paul and Silas were shackled in prison and yet they praised the Lord. Throughout the Psalms, we read of David being hounded by his enemies, weighed down by guilt of sin, and yet he would praise the Lord. Our praise should not be fueled by our circumstances. Our praise should be fueled primarily by who God is and what he has done. Again, we do need reminders to praise, do we not? Aren't we all someone like Peter who lost his focus while he was walking on the water toward Jesus? His eyes went off of Christ and onto his surroundings, and all of a sudden he began to sink and drown. Sometimes in the storms of life, we get lost and lose sight of true north, and so we need constant reminders to praise the Lord. But more than that, you and I need to determine in our own hearts that we will praise the Lord come what may. A heart that is right with the Lord a life that is controlled by the Spirit, and a mind that is fixed on God naturally results in a mouth that praises the Lord. And so if you struggle to praise the Lord, what you don't need is to get worked up in some kind of frenzy. What you need is to fix your focus in your eyes on the Lord, who He is and what He's doing, His promises and His plans. And we'll do that in a few minutes as we work through this psalm. Once your eyes are focused on him, you will find praise naturally welling up within you. But before we can fully turn our eyes upon the Lord, the psalmist warns us of one danger that will lead us away from praising God. The danger, he says, is that we would take our trust in the Lord and instead put it in the hands of men. So the second exhortation is to trust not in men. 
The first exhortation is to praise the Lord. And the second is to trust not in men. Look at verses 3 and 4. He writes, Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. The word translated prince is really not that specific. It's a word that essentially means those who exert their wills on others. The idea is simply those who have influence, those in positions of leadership and authority and power. The very people who seek our trust and who claim to be able to solve our problems are the very people in whom we are not to trust. Now, Think carefully with me about this, what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, what this passage is is telling us. The point here is not that we should be skeptical and assume that all people in authority are lying or deceiving, nor is the point here to disbelieve anything that the government says to us. That's a totally different issue. Instead, the point here is do not expect that they will be able to accomplish all that they promise to do. Don't stake your life on their promises. Don't make decisions or arrange your life under the assumption that they will fulfill their promises. Don't allow your heart to be at peace simply because of what they say. Conversely, don't allow yourself to be overtaken by fear and anxiety and worry because of what evil rulers promise. Whether they are good or evil, don't give rulers more credit than they are due. Why? Well, he tells us. Verse 4. When his spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. The word thoughts there refers to his plans, his promises, everything that he has set out to do. Clearly, the point here is that all the plans and promises are null and void when a leader dies. Now this makes sense in cultures, ancient and modern, where leaders rule until their death. But what about our culture, where it is extremely rare for our leaders to die while they're in office? What principle can we learn from this? Well, I think it's as simple as this. No leader can guarantee that their promises will come to fruition. The greatest barrier to their plans is just a heartbeat away. But in our system of government, there are a thousand bureaucratic and political barriers that can stop them from fulfilling their promises. They might promise political salvation, economic salvation, military salvation, religious freedom salvation, but there is no salvation in man because they cannot guarantee it. Spurgeon said, all men are like the few who are made into princes They are more in appearance than in reality, more in promising than in performing, more apt to help themselves than to help others. How many have turned away heartsick from men on whom they have once relied? Haven't we all experienced this for decades? Yet every four years, we're still tempted to put our hope in men and women. Friends, sons and daughters of man will always let you down. They cannot live up to their promises or your expectations. Now, of course, it's not wrong to support and vote for a candidate, but it is wrong to do so out of the belief that they will fix all of your problems, right all wrongs, and fulfill every promise. 
Praise the Lord and trust not in men. Well, who should you trust in? Who should you place your hope in? The answer is a bit obvious, isn't it? In fact, it's not even a command here. We're not told that, but it's clearly implied. We are to trust in the Lord. The third exhortation is then that we are to trust in the Lord. Look at verse 5. How blessed is he. Notice the word, the, the, the name for God here. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. Trusting in men brings disappointment and frustration. Trusting in the Lord, who is the God of Jacob, brings joy, happiness, and blessing. Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 7 and 8 of his prophecy, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its root by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. And it will not be anxious in a fear of drought nor cease to yield fruit. The man or woman who trusts in God is not uprooted or destroyed by the changing winds of politics and governments. They are not toppled over by fear of disease and death. They are not withering. They are actually thriving. The fruit they bear, of course, is spiritual fruit. In other words, you know you're trusting in God in this season when you are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did you take note of the name for God? It says that he is the God of Jacob. Why refer to him as the God of Jacob? Why name him that way? Well, I, I would tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous is wrong when they tell people that they can have help and hope if they would just find for themselves some higher power. Help and hope cannot be found in a self-determined higher power. Instead, Help and hope come only from trusting in the true and living God of Jacob who has a proven track record of helping those who trust in him. He saved Jacob's family from an international famine and gave them the best land in Egypt. While there, he preserved them as a nation for 400 years. And then he saved them from bondage to Egypt and brought them out of the house of slavery by miraculous displays of his power. He fed them and sustained them in the wilderness for 40 years such that their clothes and their sandals never wore out. He defeated their enemies time and time again. He gave them houses they had not built, fields they had not plowed, cities they had not fortified. And even when they rebelled against him and were distressed by their enemies, he saved them over and over and over again. Right before Moses died, he spoke a word of blessing to the nation of Israel. Israel, by the way, is the name that God gave to Jacob. The last words of Moses' blessing ring true not only for the nation, but also for all who put their hope in the Lord. Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-nine says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. We whose help is in the God of Jacob, and whose hope is in the Lord our God, are happy. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? God, of course, cannot be defeated or subverted or overruled. God does not die and his plans do not fail. No leader can displace him and no virus can touch him. 
Now, we could come up with all kinds of reasons why it would be good and right and a blessing to trust the Lord, but we don't have to come up with them because the Holy Spirit through this psalmist has given us 12 reasons to trust the Lord. And of course, each of these reasons deserve a sermon in their own right, but we're going to fly right through them. Reason number one, we can trust the Lord because He is the Lord of all creation. Look at verse 6, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. This is to declare His sovereign power and authority over all things. Despite what many say, man has no control what happens on or to this earth. But God controls the the weather patterns, the earthquakes, the hurricanes, sun flares, the ozone layer. What power has man over creation? Trust in the Lord and not in man. Reason number two, he is eternally faithful. Look at the end of verse six, who keeps faith forever. He is continually faithful to his covenants and promises. He performs his promises and accomplishes his plans. He never breaks his word and nothing can stop him. How many leaders have failed to keep their promises or failed to accomplish their plans? Trust in the Lord and not in men. Reason number three, he writes all wrongs. Look at verse seven, who executes justice for the oppressed. The oppressed here refers to every form of oppression, political oppression, economic oppression, spiritual oppression, those who are violated, exploited, extorted, and abused. Listen, no oppressor will get away with their wickedness before God. No dictator escapes the due penalty for their actions. No secret abuser will evade being found out and brought to justice. Whether in this life or the next, God executes justice for the oppressed. How often have governments failed to bring the wicked to justice? Trust in the Lord and not in men. Reason number four, he feeds the hungry. Look at the next line of verse seven. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord fed the Israelites in the desert. Jesus fed thousands of people. The Lord fed Elijah by sending an angel to give him bread and water. He fed the widow by miraculously refilling her flour and oil. Time and time again, the Lord gives food to those who trust him. And Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6 that in the same way that the birds have no lack of anything, neither will the children of God because God knows exactly what they need. Do kings and presidents have infinite storehouses of food for the hungry? Trust in the Lord and not in men. Reason number five, he sets captives free. Look at the end of verse seven. The Lord sets the prisoners free. This doesn't mean that he releases criminals out of prison. Of course, that would go against justice. It means he frees those who are unjustly bound in false religious systems and ideas. Near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he quoted Isaiah 61.1 saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to open the prison to those who are bound. What Jesus did was proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and freed many people from captivity to man-made religion. He freed those who were in bondage to spiritual forces. He freed those who were burdened with guilt over sin. He frees us from the bondage to sin. He frees us even from being enslaved to the power of death. 
to the fear of death. Who among men can do such things? Trust in the Lord and not in man. Reason number six, he gives sight to the blind. Look at verse eight. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. While we know Jesus gave physical sight to those who were blind in his ministry, in the Old Testament, this refers to spiritual sight. In Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord declares that the eyes of Israel will be blinded so that they cannot perceive the truth. But then in chapter 4, 42 of Isaiah, the Lord promises to send his servant, the Messiah, who will open the eyes of the blind so that they might see and perceive and believe in the Lord. Can any one of our leaders blind those who have sight or give sight to those who are blind? Trust in the Lord and not in man. Reason number seven, he strengthens the afflicted. Look again at verse eight. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. He upholds and sustains those who are bent over with burdens. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you weighed down with the expectations put upon you? Are you bent over by your own sense of inadequacy and failures as a father or wife, mother, husband, parent? Are the troubles of your life or the trials of others wearing you down? No one but the Lord can remove that burden from you. So trust in the Lord and not in man. Reason number eight, he loves the righteous. Look at the last line of verse eight. The Lord loves the righteous. Listen to the words of Psalm 34, verses 15 to 18. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry, and the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But when the righteous cries out for help, The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Brothers and sisters, the Lord loves the righteous. He cannot be bribed by the wicked. He cannot be lobbied by evildoers. He is not enticed by the schemes of the devil. He loves the righteous. He directs his attention toward the righteous. His ear is bent toward the righteous. He responds to their cry for help. Who in the Senate or in the House or anywhere in government will personally pick up your phone call and swiftly come to your aid? Trust in the Lord and not in men. Reason number nine, he preserves foreigners. Look at verse nine, the first line. The Lord protects the strangers. The Lord has always had a unique care for strangers and foreigners. In part, it's because his own people were strangers in a land of Egypt and they were mistreated. At many points in Israel's history, the prophets were like strangers in their own homes and they too were mistreated. And as believers, we are aliens and strangers in this world and we are often persecuted. The Lord guards and protects strangers. 
How many politicians are going to personally use their resources to come to the aid of those who don't meet their political causes? Trust in the Lord and not in men. Reason number 10, he defends the defenseless. Look again at verse 9. He supports the fatherless and the widow. He surrounds, embraces, and helps widows and orphans. As with sojourners, God takes unique care for those who are most vulnerable in society. The government might step in and provide a certain amount of aid for the helpless, but that's not what this is referring to. The idea is is much broader and far more personal. The, The Lord doesn't just send a check to a widow or assign an orphan to a family. The Lord gives them fortitude. He meets their every need. He sends practical help and sustains them through the lonely nights. Can a person of influence take that kind of personal care and concern? Trust in the Lord and not in men. Reason number 11, he disrupts the plans of the wicked. Look at the end of verse 9. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. It often seems that the wicked prosper, that righteous leaders or potential leaders are repeatedly defeated by evil men and women, but the Lord subverts the way of the wicked. They can only do what God says they can do and nothing more. If the devil himself is constrained by the hand of God, where God says, this far you can go and no farther, then so it is with men. Who among the ranks of men has the power to control the evil forces in the world? Even if we elected the best and most righteous of men, they would not have that power. Trust in the Lord and not in man. And then finally, number 12, he reigns forever. Finally, look at verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Beloved, the Lord is not up for election. He, is never, he never has been and He never will be. In fact, Psalm ten sixteen says, The Lord is King forever and ever, and the nations perish from His land. Don't forget that from the dawn of time, nations have risen and fallen and risen and fallen and risen and fallen again. Our own nation will not last forever. If it is not defeated by mankind, God himself will destroy this nation on his return. No man-made system of government can survive the corruption of the heart of man. God alone is king, eternal and immortal. He alone will rule and reign forever. The kings and presidents are mere stewards for a fleeting moment of time. The Lord appoints them and removes them, but no one takes God off his throne. He reigns forever. And he doesn't just sit on his throne passively looking on while everything is going on in this world. No, he is actively involved in every level of of his creation. He rules over kings. He directs the hearts of people. He governs the natural order and everything in it, including diseases and viruses. Nothing happens in our Father's world apart from which he does not have sovereign control. Someone might say, well, sure, this is all true, but if you put the right leaders, they could sure do a lot of good. And that's true. But no one has the power and no one has the longevity like the Lord. 
No earthly ruler can control creation or come alongside every widow. No prince or president can guarantee the prosperity and safety of the nation. Friends, these are not campaign promises. This is his character. These are not possible outcomes if we all just do our part. This is what he has done and what he will do. Trust in the Lord and not in men. And so with these 12 reasons to trust the Lord, the psalmist concludes his song with one final chorus of hallelujah, praise the Lord. Is there any circumstance in your life or in our country that when weighed in the balance would cause us to not praise the Lord? The prophet Habakkuk didn't think so. In fact, When he started out his letter, he started speaking as one who looks on the circumstances of life, finding no reason to praise the Lord. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Those sentiments are not far from us. Though our situation be different, our heart's cry might be much the same. But what happens when our eyes look up from our circumstances and turn To look upon the Lord. How did Habakkuk's heart change as he recognized that there's more to life than just what he sees with his eyes? Listen to the closing words of the book of Habakkuk. This is Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive field and the fields, excuse me, the produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. And he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. May that be our heart as well, that no matter what we see around us, we look to the Lord, we put our trust in the Lord, and we rejoice in Him. When we have a God like our God, what can possibly stop us from praising the Lord? God, as we look at the world around us, we see very little reasons for praise because we see wickedness abound, we see death and destruction We see the curse of sin and its full effect. And yet you are worthy of praise because of who you are. You are God of righteousness and justice and holiness and truth. You are faithful and merciful and compassionate and caring. And you treat us, you interact with us according to your character. You love us. You've sent your son to pay the penalty for our sin. You've freed us from bondage to sin. You've forgiven us and cleansed us. You've given us your spirit and you've promised us that if we put our trust in you, we will spend eternity in everlasting joy in your presence.
We praise you, God. And so we ask and appeal that you would be with our hearts, that you would remind us by your spirit to praise you today, tomorrow, and every day, that the knowledge and the thought of you would ever be present in our hearts that we might give you praise no matter what is going on around us. Again, we pray, Lord, that in your kindness that you would limit the effects of this virus, that all of the responses and procedures that are being taken to reduce its spread would not be necessary very soon so we could continue to meet in person face to face. But we thank you for this technology. We thank you for living and that we live in such a time that we can still worship together. And we ask that you would be with each family, with each person, that you would keep them safe, that you would keep them encouraged, that you would remove fear and anxiety from them, and that we would all live for your glory and be a faithful witness to our community and the world around. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.